Daniel chapter 5 is where we're at. So I'm excited for this text. Let me kind of give you some background. I, we've done some familiar background stuff before, but I want to make sure you have the right framework coming into Daniel chapter 5. Um, I've shared this every week, so bear with me. At one point in time, the nation of Israel was ruled by one king. It was under Saul, David, then Solomon. After Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. The north was called Israel. I know it's like, what? It's confusing. The south was called Judah. In the north, you had 10 tribes. In the south, you had primarily two tribes. Eventually, the north fell way before the southern kingdom. Uh, they fell in the 7th century to the Assyrians. And then we're going to see the southern kingdom be taken captive by Babylon. And there's a few different waves of Bab the Babylonians coming in and taking people from, uh, out of Jerusalem into exile, into slavery. During that time, the book of Ezekiel is being written. Jeremiah is staying in Jerusalem, asking people, begging people to repent. Don't fight God on this. We're going to be taken captive as slaves. Make the most of your time in Babylon. So you have Jeremiah is being written around this time. It's interesting because sometimes you can see the Bible and like see it as like isolated books, but it's very cohesive. And it's beautiful to see how God has someone like Jeremiah in Jerusalem, Ezekiel for the journey, Daniel in Babylon with his buddies. And you just see how the Lord's like kind of orchestrating all of this. And remember, they're only supposed to be in Babylon for how many years? 70, some of you knew. That's good. We'll talk about this more in, in coming weeks, but basically this 70 years is coming to an end. So I want to make sure you kind of understand what's happening. Here in Daniel 5, Daniel's not a teenager anymore. Daniel's an old man. So in Daniel 1 and 2, he's a young man. In Daniel 3, he's not there. The focus is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 4, he's there, probably in his, you know, 40s, around that time. Um, many years have passed between that and Daniel 5. Now, I want to actually put the book up in chronological order, because if you read this book from Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, it might get a little confusing. Like, I thought we already went on from that guy. So here's the idea. Daniel 1 through 4 is in order. The next chapter is chapter 7, if we're going in order. I almost taught Daniel 7 today. I'm like, I kind of want to go. Would, would that have been weird if I taught Daniel 7? Probably would have been weird to some of you. Um, but Daniel 7 will be the next chapter. He has some visions. Daniel 8, more visions. Then it brings us to Daniel 5. This is essentially the end of Babylon. This is Belshazzar. We're going to be introduced to him, the last king specifically of uh, the capital. And we're going to see basically the fall of this. Then after Daniel 5, you have Daniel 9, if we're going in order. Then Daniel 6... You see him throwing the lines down with Darius, and then Daniel 10 through 12. So if you ever feel like, yo, I've read through Daniel, and it just feels so like, didn't did that guy already disappear? I thought that king was gone. Why is Belshazzar back? It's because it's not written in order. Now, if you're wondering why, it's a great question. Um, some might attribute it to maybe Hebrew literature or, or how it's written in Aramaic at this point. Maybe it's took on a different version of writing. Um, some say that Christopher Nolan directed this passage of scripture. I don't know. Um, but it's kind of like all over the place. Here's, here's the idea, I think. Daniel 4 and Daniel 5 is very interesting. And God gave him more length of days in his kingdom. Here's another king who the handwriting's on the wall. That's Daniel 5. He doesn't repent. And obviously destruction's immediate. It's imminent. And so uh, some are comparing and contrasting the two. Either way, I wanna, I'll bring this up next week too because as we work through the book of Daniel and you're like, I thought Belshazzar's gone. Why is he brought back up again? It doesn't go in order. And I do think it's trying to show you the two events side by side. The king's one who repented, one who did not repent. Daniel calls out Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He calls out Belshazzar's pride here in Daniel 5. So I want you to see that. You guys following with me? Is this making sense so far? Okay. Can I get some history? Some, like, you know, my history Bible nerds? All right, we're going to do that either way. Um, next, I want you to kind of see this. So the, the idea today, and you've probably heard this phrase, the handwriting on the wall or the writing on the wall. 
It's funny how many times I think the, the non-believing world will use phrases that are just scriptural phrases, like the writings on the wall. I'm like, do you know what that's from? Um, and you'll see these phrases used. Like, this is an influential passage that has shaped culture, right? I mean, you, you've probably heard the writing on the wall or the handwriting on the wall. Um, Rembrandt did a painting of this story in Daniel 5. And it's always fun to see kind of how history, and I think the picture will be up. But I, I love to see just how scripture influences culture and influences history. And it's also not in Hebrew, so he's wrong. But um, anyways, so it's just, it's just a fascinating uh, story. Now, if you're like wondering, again, where this is at, I'm going to get a little bit, I'm going to bore you some details here, but I want you to see this. Uh, we'll put up the King Nebuchadnezzar. So he died in 562 after 43 years. There is a gap between Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and Daniel 5. Pretty significant gap. Daniel, again, he's silent in a sense for many years. He'll have a couple visions. We'll get to those. But Daniel's just faithfully serving through a lot of transitional kings. After Nebuchadnezzar, and don't get too confused, but there's his son, uh, evil Merodach. He's actually called this in Jeremiah 52. Jeremiah is aware of how evil this king is. So Jeremiah was also ministering a long time in Jerusalem, but very aware of what's happened in Babylon. So you have him referenced. You have his son. Uh, he doesn't reign very long. His brother-in-law kills him. He rules for four years. I can't really say his name, so I'm just going to say Neri. Okay, Neri kills him. Um, I don't know if I said that right. And then he ruled not for very long. And then you have his son. So it's believed that he died of natural causes. Then his son ruled for a couple months. Supposedly his son was just a nightmare, so he's murdered. So Nabonidus, who's the king who helped kill that last king, he becomes king. And Nabonidus is the primary king during this time. And, and why this is, and I'll explain why this is important in just a second. But it's believed that Nabonidus is actually not in Babylon. He's fighting the Medes and the Persians elsewhere. Historically, he's also known to worship a certain god specifically where he wanted to go and travel to their temple. So Nabonidus sets up his son, Belshazzar, to be king, like a co-king, as he leaves Babylon. Either as he's fighting the Medes and the Persians because he might die, or as he's visiting different gods, they seem to have a co-reign at different times. Now, this is just historical. Here's why I love this. This is why this is fascinating. For about almost 2,000 years, I mean, there is no evidence whatsoever of this guy Belshazzar throughout history. They're like, Christians, what are you talking about? Daniel 5, Belshazzar, this feast. There is no outside of scriptural text, no evidence whatsoever for Belshazzar. And then in 1854, a guy named J.G. Taylor, he's exploring uh, Iraq, the southern part, the area where Babylon would have been. He finds the Nabonidus cylinders. And in that is a prayer for Nabonidus and his son, Belshazzar, who's reigning in Babylon. And I love this because this time and time again, and imagine Christians being, I, I, I'm sure Belshazzar was real, you know, for like 1,800 years. We'd be like, come on, I'm sure this guy's a real guy. And then obviously history always eventually catches up with the Bible. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like this is what happens. Christians, and, and this, is, this is something where it's not like a minimal thing. For so long, people go, Christians, you just, you do this. You, you impose certain texts and certain kings or certain leaders, they're not there. And then eventually you find them. You can uh, actually go see the Nabonidus cylinders. I believe they're in the British Museum of History. Um, right now, you can currently go see them. A huge discovery describing Belshazzar. Since then, there's been a few more other discoveries mentioning Belshazzar. But the idea is, um, I think this book, it's, it's just throughout, throughout the world, it's been trying to be dismissed. There's no way that the Bible's real. Here's an example, Belshazzar, they find him. Um, I love this. Time and time again, history catches up with the Bible. So, uh, Nabonidus is the king, but you're going to see this guy, Belshazzar, also be that co-king, specifically reigning in Babylon. Now, during this time, even in the Nabonidus Cylinder, and actually I'll have another picture. I think it's just the, um, it's just the Babylonian Chronicles. It talks about how 
the city was besieged by the Medes and the Persians and describes during this night how they were fighting about 50 miles away and they eventually came into Babylon to attack them. So what we're reading in Daniel 5, whether it's the Nebuchadnezzar Cylinders or the Chronicles, I don't know if you see that rock there, uh, whether it's that or, or the other one, uh, there's this idea that this is just an historical event that took place. There was a night, there was a day, the Medes and the Persians come in, they take over Babylon. Now, you're going to also see another guy that's debated, uh, Darius. Darius is the king that reigns over Babylon from the Medes and the Persian side. But ultimately, Cyrus is the king of, of Persia. And he sets up like a co-regent king of a certain area. So if you're lost, know this. Back, you had, you had, let's say you had Caesar in the Roman Empire. Caesar would be the, the main guy, but you have little kings reign different areas. This is essentially Cyrus and Darius. So as you're going to read this text, you're going to see a lot of names. Know this. Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. Darius, a general who will become king of this area, is about to take over. Did I lose you guys? I'm so sorry if I did. All right. I wanted to explain this because I've read through this book so much, and I'm like, why is Belshazzar mentioned here and there? And then why is there this break in this book? I think having the framework helps you kind of get into the text a little bit better. And I think it also can help if you go, wow, look at Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather. So it's believed that Nebuchadnezzar's daughter is Belshazzar's mom. And that's how, when it says Nebuchadnezzar, your father... It's using that term in a generic way to describe his grandfather. So you're going to see these words like, hey, Belshazzar, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, that's his grandfather. So don't get lost. People get weird with this. He's not technically his father. It was a term used to describe like your heritage, your family line. So you guys with me? We're all caught up? You have a decent framework? Okay. Maybe not. I probably just more confused you, and that's okay. Um, here's what we're going to do. It's a long text. It's a beautiful text. And basically, here's the main idea. When I say the handwriting on the wall, God is a God who's like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to show up when you probably least expect it. You can drown out me through partying, but I'm still going to show up. He's like, it's inevitable. I'm going to meet you. And I just want you to see that wherever you're at right now, you can try to dismiss God. You can try to, I don't need this. God will show up. God will show up in unique ways. And I don't want to miss out on that. So why don't we just pray and invite the Lord to speak and move. So Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you for this, this word. Thank you for this text. I just ask that you would lead us, that you'd speak to us. Um, God, make things clear. Give us your perspective on what's happening here. God, I ask that you would do something unique in us. And uh, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for how this even points to Jesus. And I'm excited just to see, Lord, how you, in just unique ways, ultimately point us to what you've done for us. We just want to thank you in your precious name. Amen. All right, do you guys remember being a kid? And there's certain things as a, a, a kid that just set you off. You know, for my kids, and I, I, it's weird because I, I get annoyed as a parent, but I have to remind myself when I was a kid, this used to bug me. Um, but it's funny, my son, my daughter, when they get mad, they do this thing, they've done this thing, they're kind of phasing out of it, but they like point at you, right? It's almost like they're mad and, just going, <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? And I see them do it to each other. I've seen them like point at each other and they're like, what is, what is point, like point, like pointing? Have you ever seen someone point at you? It's like, even as an adult, someone like points at you in the car, you're like, what the heck? Right? There's something about a finger. Maybe, I'm not talking about the other finger, but I'm saying like that pointing finger, even that. And it's funny because my kids have done that and I've seen that and I've witnessed that. And it brings me back to like my childhood of like my, my brother. You, you remember all those kind of emotions and feelings. And I, I've seen my son do this where I've seen him point at my, his, my sister, my daughter, my daughter, his sister. I've seen him point. And then I'm like, hey, don't point. That's not nice. Let's, let's, let's just eat dinner. And then they point under the table. And then they, you look under the table, right? And you're like, Dad, they're pointing at me. And you're like, please don't point under the table. I don't know. We've all, we've all kind of seen that, witnessed that. This idea of just like the, this finger of judgment, this finger of, I see what's going on here. 
it's, it's, we've all participated in it in some way. Essentially, here in Daniel 5, there is a finger that's writing judgment on a wall. Now, I, I want to be really clear. Um, sometimes I can read passages like this and go, man, look at God show up and just write judgment on the wall, which we'll, we'll get to. But in reality, I think one of the things we have to see in scriptures is God ultimately warns us because he loves us. There is this warning from God to Belshazzar, to everyone around him, really. But God's warning is a sign of his love. And I do think as a parent, as a person, you, you get this. I don't know how many times I've been somewhere in public. And like, I remember going to the Grand Canyon years ago with my son who was like three, I think, maybe two at the time. And I thought it'd be this beautiful day at the Grand Canyon. And the whole day, you realize there's not like rails. Like we literally, I tried to like put him in the backpack and he wouldn't do that. And I tried to strap him in the stroller. But like as soon as we like release him, they just want to like run over the cliff. You know, I don't know. There's something in kids that are like, that looks fun. And I, I do feel like as a parent, I mean, honestly, for like the first few years, half your job is just keep them alive. That, that is like it. It's like, this is terrifying. They're just trying to run into the road, run off the cliff. And so uh, all we were doing is, no, come back here, get here. You like tackle them before they run off the cliff. I mean, those memories of like, this will be so fun, the Grand Canyon. It's not fun memories, okay, um, for us or him. And it's funny because there's a side of it, and you know this. It's like, I, I'm not yelling at you. Like, I'm like, hey, like you see that. It's not anger. There, there's love. Like, get back here. I love you. And I want you to see in scriptures that warnings are not this angry God. The right on the wall is not this angry God. It's, I believe it's this loving God. And I don't believe we always respond to it the right way. And I do want us to kind of reframe maybe how we've heard this story or look at this story. And ultimately, there is sin, and there's going to be judgment of sin one way or another. This happened with his grandpa, Nebuchadnezzar. There was sin. God brings judgment. Luckily, he repented. There's sin. God brings judgment. But there's no repentance here. And so it's believed that maybe Daniel 5, again, is introduced in that way to say, um, even though it went from chapter 4 to chapter 5, there's a huge gap in between. The idea is to so, show, look, it's their sin, and whatever their sin, there's going to be judgment. But God in his grace judges us because he loves us, and we either accept that, embrace that, or we fight against it. And so I want to, like, read the story. Let's kind of jump in. Um, if we are going to break this text up, because it is a story, it is a narrative, and um, it's hard to kind of break some of this up, so we'll, we'll look at it this way. Number one is this. Uh, God sees our sin. God confronts our sin. God exposes our sin. God judges our unrepentant sin. <laughs> We are going to talk a lot about sin. All right, but ultimately, it's, it's good, I promise. Okay, so number one is this. God sees our sin. Here's the story. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the context. Let's jump right in. Daniel 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. By the way, that's not like a very common thing, the king to drink wine in front of his thousand to expose himself in kind of this way. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lord, his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is a, a notorious party that Belshazzar is throwing. It's not even fair to call it a party. There's a lot of words that could be used for what's happening. Um, he has a thousand of his lords, his wives, his concubines. Um, you know, you think about maybe the most outrageous parties ever thrown. I, I can't even, I don't even know. Maybe, maybe the most infamous 
kind of well-known Hollywood parties back in the 20s, whatever. There's kind of like stories like elephants being brought in, all this crazy stuff. This goes down as just one of the most infamous parties of all times. So honestly, most commentators say it's not really a party. It's just an orgy, a lot of drinking, a lot of women, a lot of debauchery. Let's bring in, and this is in a very um, intentional way, let's bring in the God of Jerusalem, the God of uh, the Jews. Let's bring in their golden vessels, the vessels that were in the temple. It was intentionally trying to be blasphemous to the Jewish gods at the same time. So this party is a wild party, all right? And I think the context is important just for us to see, like, God sees what's going on. This is not done in secret. One of the things I, ha- I find fascinating, and even like it stopped when I was reading this, they drank this, these, you know, from the, the vessels of gold, and they're praising the gods of gold and silver and their wooden, their pagan gods, essentially. They're using the vessels that were in the temple in Jerusalem to worship the one true God, and everything was inscribed was holy unto the Lord. The vessels in the temple, holy unto the Lord. And they're in a blasphemous way trying to drink that, celebrate. And it's interesting that it even turns into worship. Did you catch that in verse 4? For me, that's fascinating. It's like they wanted to worship their gods. It's like these pagan people, kings, still want to have this sense of worship. Here's the idea. Sin is ultimately a worship problem. You have to understand, it's not that Christians worship and other people don't. Everyone worships. And you have to see that. Obviously, you might know that, but everyone worships something. The gods of gold, silver, what we can do, what we can make. The idea is everyone ultimately worships something, and that's what they're doing. They're, 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 this turns into like a debauchery. Women are there, alcohol, all, all the things going on, but then it turns into worship. I don't know even what that is, but I, I read that. I'm like, why is this thing in us to try to like worship? Even when you don't believe in the one true God, there's still something in us to try to worship. There's still something in them that, that had this desire to worship their gods. And that's just a fast, like, what, what is that? I love what St. Augustine said about this. He goes, the essence of sin is disordered love. This is what this is, the essence of sin. Like, what is sin? What is sin? You know, there's a lot of words to describe it. Sin simply means to miss the mark, but I actually like this description a lot. Sin is disordered love. It's you, you value something more than God. Like, I, I value God, but I value something more than him. Sin is ultimately disordered love. And I think what's happening here is they are valuing, obviously, they're valuing something more than God. They're trying to intentionally be blasphemous. Um, there's a, I don't know why this, I was reading up on this and I thought this was interesting, the, the intentionality to be blasphemous. Um, Richard Dawkins years ago did something called the blasphemy challenge. And, you know, um, Richard Dawkins is like notorious for just being anti-God, not just being an atheist, but just being like anti-God. And uh, he did something called the blasphemous challenge, which was essentially, he tried to get, I think it's $25,000 where it was essentially donated to uh, give away 25 of his DVDs he made against God. But the idea was he wanted people to get online and commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That was his goal. And you can read about it. It's just fascinating to try to create as many YouTube videos from, like, yeah, that young college kind of age. Like, come on, guys. We all know this is just, you know, the spaghetti monster in the sky. This is all just made up. And you try to get people to intentionally blaspheme God. And I'm like, this is very, this is the same heart and spirit you're seeing here. He's intentionally trying to bring out the gold vessels from the temple, the things that were used as worship to God. And this heart of just intentionally trying to blaspheme God. And this sin is just disordered love. Everyone worships something but they're worshiping something other or outside of God. And here's the thing about sin that's interesting, right? You look at this moment. Yo, this is a wild party. I'm sure in some ways, like, if you had, like, Instagram back in the day, you'd be like, I want to be at that party. Or people are looking down at, like, they're looking up at where this party's happening. They can hear the music, the noise. Like, oh, that's where the life is at. That's where the party is at. The Bible does talk about that. It says, you know, sin is pleasurable for a season. It acknowledges the idea that there's a sense of pleasure in sin, but momentarily. There is two lies sin tells all of us, and put it, we'll put it up here. Um, a lie of sin is sin is fulfilling, 
and there won't be any consequences. I think a lie that I think a lot of us have bought into is like this idea or lifestyle or event or thing, it will fulfill you. It will, it will meet your needs. You know, and I think it's like the people who aren't there want to be there. They're not at this party. They probably want to be at that party. I think a lie is that sin is fulfilling. I think another lie is that there's not going to be any consequences from that sin. And I think that many of us kind of fall into that trap. And here's the thing. As I was just reading the first four verses and trying to get, put myself in the context, I mean, this is the, the most infamous, notorious kind of parties ever. And it just goes down that, like in history, in the Bible. And here's how I'm just trying to word it. Um, I think so often we party to, dry, to drown out the reality of what we all know is coming. And that is that judgment is coming. So here's the thing I'm trying to sit in for a little bit. What is this thing in all of us? Like, we don't like to sit in silence. We would rather have crazy, loud, just a, a wild things going on to distract us ultimately from the thing that we all know is coming. We all know death is coming. We all know judgment is coming. I have to point this out, but historically speaking, Belshazzar would know that the enemy is at his gate. We're going to read the end of the chapter. Like, we know that Darius shows up and he's immediately killed. That's the end of the story. You know, that's how, it, how, that's how it goes. It's not that he's oblivious to this. It's not a sneak attack. History shows us that there's a couple thoughts. He probably was boasting in the walls. They had 300-foot walls around Babylon. It's actually fascinating. It actually depicts how they got in. History talks about how they got in that night. I'm not going to get into those details. It doesn't matter too much. But the idea was that um, Belshazzar knew that the enemy was at his gates, and he's still throwing a party. He knew the enemy was right around the corner. Nabonidus... The king is fighting, and he's partying. I want us to sit in this for a little bit. What is that within us? Like, why, why do we all have this thing? Where, like, we, we all, like, I've talked to people, I think, who are, like, they don't want to come face-to-face with their own mortality. The, the, the idea of, like, they, they know, everyone knows they're going to die, but no one wants to spend some time thinking about that. No one wants to spend time addressing that. Or the idea that, like, no, you and I will both stand before God. And, and that doesn't have to be um, a fearful thing. It can also be, as Second Corinthians 5 talks about, more of like this reward ceremony. It can be a beautiful thing where like you're reunited with your true love, your first love. But in reality, I think that a lot of people try to put off the thought of their own mortality. You know, um, I think it's Ernest Becker. He wrote a book called like, The Denial of Death. And he said, human beings cannot live in full, honest awareness of the meaning of death. There's just something about it where we're trying to like, put this off. I don't want to think about it. I, I want to encourage you today um, to not try to drown out the, the thought of your mortality by, by living it up. Their thought was, the enemy's at the gate, let's party. You know, I think Paul even kind of addresses that spirit. There's a spirit of, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And, and in reality, it's like, hey, let's make the, mo- the days that we have are so numbered and so minimal and you can either just like party your way till death. I, I think it was um, Blaise Pascal. He's like a famous uh, philosopher. And he, he gave the analogy um, back in his day. I think it's like of a stagecoach. And he goes, imagine you're on a stagecoach heading to the cliff, like heading to death. You're, you're like you're with the horses. And like you know there's a cliff. You know you're going to die. But all, the whole time you're just trying to like talk to other people in the cart and be like, isn't this scenery beautiful? It's so nice here. And like, oh, the wind feels so good on your face. And basically it's like, let's just talk about anything other than death. Let's just talk about anything other than the thing that's in front of us. We all know we're about to go off this cliff, but man, that tree is beautiful. And I think there is that thing in all of us that's like, I don't want to come face to face with my own mortality. I I can't encourage you enough. You know, Ecclesiastes 3 talks about it's better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of laughter. 
meaning another modern translation, like it's better to go to a funeral home than to go to a comedy club. Like no one believes that though. <laughs> he says, why? Because the living take it to heart. It's better to, be, to go to a funeral home and contemplate your immortality than to go and just laugh and laugh and laugh until you die. The point being, like, we should come face to face with this reality. Don't drown out the reality that you know is coming. Like, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you, all, you and I both know this thing's coming for us. We all know our life here is, is just a vapor. Here for a moment, gone tomorrow. And there's this thing where Belshazzar is aware of this, and he's like, yo, let's party. Death, destruction, eh, we're going to party it up. I would say this, we have to learn from his example. It's like, no, no, God is trying to get your attention. Wake up. Don't push this off. You can, I love Paul. Paul came, uh, Paul just became like at peace with the idea of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's like, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, hell. Like, he's like, I have no fear. Jesus has conquered you. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear the cliff. I know what is ahead of me. I know what's next. There is a way where you can have this, like, this victory in a sense of not fearing death anymore because you know that Jesus has already conquered it. And so this idea of, I think they're just like slowly putting off their, this idea of death. So um, here's what I want you to know. This is actually some, something that Isaiah prophesied would happen. He prophesied about the fall of Babylon a couple hundred years before it happened. It's Isaiah 47, but here's what it says. He says, you felt secure. He said this to Babylon. Isaiah 47, you can read it. He says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. You hear that phrase? No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am... And there is no one besides me, a phrase for God. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. This is literally describing what's happening here in Daniel 5. Isaiah 47 is written to those in Babylon. And this reality, you can try to put it away, put it aside. You can try to, try to live it up until the day you die. The, the idea is we know that judgment is coming for all of us. Belshazzar knows judgment is coming, but his thoughts are, let's just party. Let's just live it up. So God sees you. Now let's look at the context number two. God confronts our sin. Verse five, keep going with the story. Uh, we'll spend less time in this. Verse five, immediately, all right? So they're drinking from the, the, the vessels for the, in the temple. Immediately, <laughs> the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. All right, number two is this. Uh, God confronts our sin. So he's, like, intentionally blaspheming God, and I really, I honestly try to, like, sit in that. Like, imagine the scripture sometimes. Imagine you're just, like, looking at the ladies, the wine's flowing, the music's going. It's just the most insane party ever, and this hand appears and starts writing on the wall. And we'll see what the hand writes in a moment, but his hand starts writing on the wall, and it just, he goes white. I mean, he's sobered up quickly. I want to think about, like, this guy's probably incredibly intoxicated, and then just his, he just goes limp. He just changes color. His knees are knocking together. I don't know if, like, just, I can't even, like, imagine that overwhelming fear of, like, oh, my gosh, the divine has shown up. What does this mean? 
and he seeks out the wise men. Now, this is interesting, right? This is the third time something happens, and they call for the wise men and the enchanters. Two times with Nebuchadnezzar, now here with Belshazzar. And let's just look at this. It's never worked, right? We get that? This is the third time we've read this in the book of Daniel. It's almost getting old. It's like, ah, oh, we know what to do. Call the wise men. Call the enchanters. Call the, the astrologers. Call everyone we can. And they're like, ah, oh, we still can't help you. Now, he, maybe he's unfamiliar a little bit with the story, and we'll see why. His, the queen's going to recommend Daniel come in in just a second. But this is the third time they call us for the wise men, and the wise men offer nothing. And I, I just think this is, we have to, there is a takeaway. Whenever scripture repeats itself in this way, I have to slow down and be like, okay, why this third time? We have the same reaction. What do the wise men of our day say? What, what's the leading thinkers think of this? For some reason, we'll turn to everything and anything other than God himself. So I, I, it's interesting how, like, it's funny today. I think how a lot of young people, a lot of kids Google, when I say young people, I don't even know what I'm saying. A lot of people like Google questions about God or Google questions about life or about different things. We'll turn to everything. We'll re- read a Wikipedia. We'll read some Quora forum. I don't know. We'll read all, anything other than what the scriptures have to say. What does God have to say about this? But here's the idea. It's like time and time again, you see, it just fails. It does not satisfy. They're not able to give the answer. Listen, church, we have to understand this takeaway, obviously. I get it, even for us. There is a temptation to be like, what do our wise men say of, the, of this issue? What do we do about our issues of our day? And we can turn to politicians. We can turn to different thought leaders and thinkers. I will say this. We must turn to scriptures. I think that some Christians are better versed in what certain authors say than what actually scriptures say. I would say get more familiarized with scripture itself than you might a certain thought leader or thinker. Even if I enjoy them or you like it's like I'd say that we need to be students of the word. We need to know, like, what does scripture say on this topic? But again, time and time again, they turn to anything else. Now, here's what I find fascinating. The finger that writes in the wall. Um, there's a few times we'll see something in the scriptures where obviously it's implied that this is the hand of God. Now, um, I love what Isaiah says. Isaiah talks about how God is not man. The Bible will use anthropomorphic language to describe how, like, God has a hand. That, does God not have a hand that he cannot save? God is spirit. God does not have hands and fingernails. God is spirit. We worship in spirit and in truth. But then a lot of times the Bible like, will show up where God uses language in a way to kind of speak to us or kind of help us understand what's really happening. So, for example, in Exodus 31, when the tablets, were, the Ten Commandments were being written out, it says that a hand wrote that out. It's Exodus 31, uh, verse 18. It says, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So basically God's writing on these tablets of stone, the finger of God. He's writing out, here's how you live life. Here's the commandments. God is writing on the wall. We'll look at another passage later, but you see the hand or the finger of God writing something. And it's to wake us up, essentially. Here's the law. Here's the wall. The wall. Here's God saying judgment is coming. He doesn't wake up from it. We didn't wake up from it from the Ten Commandments. We didn't wake up from it here with it being on the wall. I, I got to be really clear. This king actually responded with emotion. I think that's a lot more than some of us today. Obviously, he freaked out. Could you imagine, like right now? Like, no, could you, if that were like, there's a finger that starts running the wall, I'm like, oh my gosh, this would be terrifying. He literally like, falls apart, all right? The, the point is, God is still speaking and God is still moving and we, we still respond with less emotion than this king does. Like, responding with emotion is not enough, though. Just because he's responded with emotion and he breaks down, some translations are like, maybe he like emptied himself. Like, he just, like, you know what that means. But the idea is like, he's just like, this, I'm done. This is terrifying. But just because you respond in emotion to God does not mean you responded to God. And there is something about that. He responds with emotion. Even demons believe in God and tremble. Demons tremble like this man trembles. 
it still does not mean that he now knows this God who he's trembling about. So just because you've had an experience with God where you've trembled does not mean you know God. And that is something that is terrifying. I think we should wake up. Just because you've responded emotionally to God does not mean you responded to the one true God. Does not mean you're, you're giving your life to him or following him. Emotion does not mean you're necessarily all in. So God confronts him. And number three is this. God exposes now our sin. So he confronts our sin, now he exposes the sin. Look at verse 10. We'll keep going. The queen, uh, so here's what's happening. Verse, number, number three, verse 10. The queen, beca- because of the, the words of the king and his lords came, and his lords came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Sorry. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Uh, now let Daniel be called Belteshazzar, sorry. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Who's this queen? Some believe this queen is actually Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Obviously, she'd be a lot younger than him, um, and she's possibly around still at this time. So maybe this is like his grandma as the queen. Um, some believe maybe it's another, you know, someone who's related to Belteshazzar in some way. So there is that idea. Now, I want to point this out. What does she call him? What's the name she calls him? What does she call him? This guy. She goes, there's someone in the kingdom who can interpret this. What does she say? She calls him Daniel. Now, this is interesting. He's called, Bel- he's called Belteshazzar throughout this, but now he's called Daniel. I love this. Daniel always referred to himself as Daniel in the book of Daniel, and other people referred to him as Belteshazzar. But now the queen's like, let me tell you about Daniel. I love this because Daniel's identity eventually became his reputation. This is so, this is so profound to me. As an old man, he's finally called Daniel. After years of just faithful service, he's finally called by the name he wants to be called. And I, I love this because so often we want our reputation and we lose our identity. Daniel fought for his identity and now it became his reputation. The irony in this, by the way, do you remember what Daniel means? It means God will judge. And the irony in this is you're going to see uh, the king call him Daniel. And basically, as he's saying the word Daniel, he's literally saying what's about to happen to him. He's saying, Daniel, I heard you can interpret this. Daniel, God, the God who judges. So there's like, I feel like there's irony and a play on words happening here, but we'll keep going. The queen's like, look to, to Daniel, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck. We're going to deck you out, man. And you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. The idea of the third ruler is you have Nabonidus, you have uh, Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, and then you have Daniel. That would be the thought. He can't offer him the second because he's the second. You'll be the third ruler in the kingdom, the highest I can give you. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't want your stuff. What's the point? I don't want your stuff. It's all going to disappear anyways. There's something profound about this. What's the point of having all this stuff when the kingdom's going to end? All of this is going to end. What's the point of having all of your stuff? Verse 17, nevertheless, 
I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So here he goes. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. That was last week, chapter four, if you missed that, that whole story. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwellings was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until, everyone say until. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. That was the whole point of last week, chapter chapter 4. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your hearts, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and your lords and your, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. That is, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. We'll just stop there, right, by the way. I know we want to keep going. Uh, here's what, this, what I want us to see. This is, this is unbelievable. Daniel shows up, and he goes, listen, I don't want your stuff. Don't give me anything. It doesn't matter. It's all going to be gone anyways in just moments. He's like, I'm going to give you an interpretation. And he walks him through the story. Now, this is important because he's saying, look at you know this. You know what happened with your grandpa. This is years later. Now, I know chapter four just happened, but it's years later. He's like, you know what happened. You know, he was humbled, but he repented. And so God restored him his kingdom. He's like walking through the story with him. Uh, I love what one author, Dorsey, said. He said, structured repetition is used throughout Daniel to emphasize the book's two main themes. Here's the main themes. Yahweh's supremacy over all earthly powers and the importance for Jews to remain loyal to their God even in exile. You see these stories on repeat. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn there's only one true God and he controls everything and he learned that. It actually ended with just praise and worship of God in chapter 4. We see that. He invites all peoples to know the God he now worships. It's believed, as I talked about last week, it's believed that Nebuchadnezzar genuinely repented and became a follower of Yahweh. That's what, like, that's what many Christians believe and will argue that we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. That's an interesting thought. He's like, he repented, but you did not, but you are not. You have the same spirit. You're, you're arrogant just like your, your dad or your grandpa. You're doing exactly what he did. You did not learn the lessons from him. You, you didn't have to learn this way. I've mentioned this before, but we don't always have to learn the hard way. We don't. We can learn from others' mistakes. And he's like, you could have learned this, and yet you didn't. You know, um, there's, a, there's a guy, I, I want to recommend this book. There's a book called Emotionally Healthy uh, Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Leader, a guy named Pete Scazzaro. Honestly, it's been such a good book for us over the years to walk through. I've read through it a couple times now because um, it's like, how do we not just lead? 
how do we lead well? How do we lead emotionally healthy? So he wrote this book called Emotionally Healthy Leader and Spirituality. And this is a quote some of you might disagree with, and that's fine. But here's what he says. <laughs> I thought it was profound. He says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And let me just explain that, too, before you get all offended. Um, he's not talking about generational sins, but he's talking about generational patterns. And this idea of, like, you know what, we have to acknowledge that, you know, there are certain things, our family members, that we've seen growing up, and maybe we repeat and we pass down to the next generation. And he, he acknowledges this idea of, like, listen, you might say, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, I've been born again, I'm saved, but there's still grandpa on your bones. Meaning, there's probably some family history things you should walk through and say, Lord, what am I not seeing? What can I own? What do I need to repent of? How, how do I need to surrender this, give this over to you? I know our family tree or pattern is prone to X. We're prone to doing this or living this way or giving ourselves over to these certain type of sins. And I do appreciate that. just the idea of like slow down and explore that. Where, what can you own and say, I didn't realize that this is what my great grandpa did, my grandpa did, my dad did. Now that's in me. Um, and how do I actually walk through this in a way of healing? Now, I want to finish the quote before everyone's offended. He says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And the task of discipleship is to get m Jesus more and more into your bones. And, and that is the task. And that's what we have to fight for. And, and just here's the idea. He's going, uh, Belshazzar, don't you realize that your grandpa did the same thing you've done? He lifted his, up in, his heart in pride and in arrogance, and God humbled him. And you're doing this all over again. What are you doing? He repented. And he's basically giving him, like, opportunity to see what's really going on, what's really happening here. Now, obviously, he goes on then to explain. Um, and here's how he described God, by the way. I don't know if you caught that phrase in verse 22 or verse 23, but I had to, like, stop. He's like, you worship all these other gods, but he says, but the God in whose hand is your breath. It's crazy. This hand that wrote on the wall, <laughs> this God, his, your breath is literally in his hand. Do you, you might think that you're impenetrable, invincible. You, you might think so highly of yourself as the king of the world empire at that time, essentially, even though it's on its way to an end. You might think so highly of yourself, but you, do you know how fragile you are? Your breath is in his hand. There, there is such a, uh, when we come face to face with God, there's such a humbling thing that happens. Listen, you can never encounter God and not be humble. There's just no way. There's no way you can ever come to God and not walk away and going, whoa, I'm worse than I thought I was, and he's better than I thought he was. It's the book of Job. The whole story of Job is climax in Job 42, where Job says what? I've heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now that my eye sees you, I what? I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. He literally says, I've heard about you, but now that I've seen you, I hate myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And God's like, bingo, you get it. Because meaning this, it's like the whole, it's the whole John comment that this frustrates people. I must decrease and he must increase. You are not, and I am not as great as we internally think we are. And you might think God is great, but he's even better than that. <laughs> and it's like, we have such a weird view of ourselves and of God. And you have to, uh, you have to see this. Like anyone who's ever come face to face, it's when Peter sees Jesus and time and time again, he's like, um, Jesus, we've been fishing all night. We're not going to cast our nets on those side. I guess we'll do it because you're saying to do it. And then when they do when they finally obey Jesus, when they finally see Jesus for who he is, what does he do? He goes, my Lord and my God. There's a sense of like humbling that always takes place when you, you come face to face with God. If you have experienced Jesus, you will be humbled in some capacity. You have to be. You have to realize, like, I'm not as great as I think I am, and he's way better than I think he is. And, and this is the problem. Belshazzar has this chance to come face to face with God. God writes on the wall, and he still misses it. He still misses it. He doesn't repent, and we'll see that in a second, but he misses it. Now, here's the writing on the wall. Just so you, you, can, you know, you saw it. But mene, mene, tekel, parson. 
Now, some say it's a play on words. Others can understand it. You can like read about how it was written from right to left and maybe how it's spelled out. But the idea is this. Mene, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. So mene, mene, numbered. Your days are numbered. You, 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 have, you have moments left, literally moments. Like God has numbered your days. Tekel, um, it's, it's been weighed. So like the scales of justice, in a sense. Like you've been found lacking. So you think like, you think you're good, but the scales are off. Like you're lacking. You're, you're not there. You're not who you think you are. And then divided. Parson. Some say it's a play on words because the idea is like it's referring to the Persians, but it's also referring to division, saying your kingdom's going to be divided now. So numbered, numbered, way divided. Even many, many. Why like twice? It's to emphasize the fact that it's done, man. It's done. You know, so Psalm 90 tells us this. It says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There is something, listen, this is not just for this king. This is not just for Belshazzar. I think we can learn from this writing on the wall, meaning, um, guys, we are not guaranteed anything. How many of you know this? How many of you know that, like, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, you're not guaranteed tomorrow? I'm not, I, I can't act like I'm, I'm uh, the author of my life. I'm not. The captain of my ship, I'm not. Jesus is the author and finisher of my faith. He knows if I have moments, decades. He knows. He knows for you. I've, in high schools, I remember just sitting in a couple of different funerals for my friends. There's two funerals specifically. I remember sitting there, looking at this kid who died in a car accident. It's an open casket. I'm 16. He died at 18. He's on my basketball team, just graduated. And um, I remember sitting there going, I thought this guy would be around forever. Like, I remember coming face to face at 16, like, looking at someone's corpse sitting there going, this will be my end. Like, this is everyone's end. There's a few moments in life I think that God has to do to, like, wake us up. Like, our days are numbered. This is not for someone else. There is such an arrogance in Belshazzar to think like, I'm the king who's going to live forever. Oh, king, live forever, the common phrase used in that time. Oh, king, live forever. I think he began to believe that lie. Like, maybe I will. Like, no. So you see this in him. Hey, he goes, many, many. Your days are numbered, man. Like, it's done. Tekel. Um, you've been found wanting. Like, you've been in the, the God's scale. Like, you do not have enough righteousness. You're, you're, you're lacking. You're found wanting. Like, you, there's not enough there. You know, no one will ever stand before God and look and go, you know what, I think I've done enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds. You hear that phrase? And they're using this, like, scales of justice phrase. I even, you've talk, I've talked to people who still do think that way of, like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty sure I've done more good than bad. And the scales of justice, I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to be on your scales of justice or mine. Like, I'm, I'm, my, my, I've been found lacking in the scales of justice. You know, imagine this way, too. So not even just God's law, God's Ten Commandments. Uh, I, I love this idea. Um, imagine you had an app on your phone that every time you said the word should, imagine like you just said, you know, they should do this. They should give that. They should be like this. Imagine every time you said that word, this app recorded you and just basically created like a framework of like your life. And did you even keep what you said others should do? So not even like, here's God's laws, here's God's commandments. You can't even keep your own commandments. You can't even keep your own like, I should, they should, I can't believe they would. It's like, you can't even keep your own standard of righteousness, let alone God's, right? Like, there's no one who can keep their, even their own. I hear people all the time, they should do this. I'm like, do you do that? I don't know. Like, that's, that's pretty, the point is we're all found lacking. We're all found wanting. We all can't even keep our own standard of our own righteousness. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this specifically. He says this about the scales. He says, I put but one weight into the scale. It is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he says, and I invite any man who thinks himself to be of the right stamp and flatters himself that he has no need of mercy 
no need of washing in the blood of Jesus Christ, no need of any atonement, I invite him to put himself into the scales and see whether he is full weight when there is but this one commandment in the other scale. Oh, my friends, if we did but try ourselves by the very first commandment of the law, we must acknowledge that we are guilty. But when we drop in weight after weight till the whole sacred ten are there, there is not a man under the scope of heaven who has one grain of wit left, but must confess that he is short of the mark, that he falls below the standard which the law of God requires. There's no one, there's no, if you drop in weight after weight, he goes, no one can keep this. This is why we're told what in Matthew 6? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. His righteousness. Can I tell you on the scales, I am found lacking and wanting. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I am forgiven. It is paid in full. The scales are even in a sense because of what Jesus has done for me. I can never boast in my righteousness or the things I've done. My righteousness, Isaiah says, is as filthy rags to the Lord. So the reality is don't ever try to find yourself in this place of like, well, I guess on the scales I'm doing pretty good. No, we're boasting in the finished work of the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for us that he stamped over us, it is finished. Because the scale, don't ever try to like weigh yourself. I guess I'm doing okay today. I guess I'm doing bad tomorrow. Like, this is a terrible game to play. Daily boast in the righteousness of Jesus. It, you will be miserable if you try to look at your day and be like, did I do a pretty good day? Was I more good than bad? Like, what are you even talking? Did you seek first Jesus and his kingdom and his righteousness? Those are the scales we need, his righteousness. And this is what Spurgeon essentially points to. He says, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Paris, your kingdom's divided. It's going to be given to the Persians. It says it this way in Hebrews 9. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So he says, on the wall, what you saw is many, many tegel parson. Your days are numbered. Your days are weighed. You're found lacking. Your kingdoms be divided. It's going to be taken from you. It's appointed for men to die once. Then there's judgment. And here's what happens. He shares this. What would normally happen to someone who shares that information? Off with their head, right? So here's what he does. He doesn't repent, but we'll keep reading. Verse 29, and this is the first point. God judges our unrepentant sin. Look at verse 29. Then Belshazzar, so imagine get this message. Your days are numbered and divided and given over. Then Belshazzar, what did he do? He gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold, was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, which lasted like one minute. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. That very night, that very night, that very night, that phrase just stands out, that very night, your days are numbered, they're divided, they're given over, you're found lacking. That very night, it's stripped away from him. It's appointed unto men to die once, then judgment. The, the point is, this is fulfilled. What did he do? Did he not go, God, have mercy on me. <laughs> like, my, are, my days are numbered and divided, have mercy on me. He's like, well, just give him what I said. You know, give him the gold chain or, the, you know, the chain, the purple rope. Give him that. He let him be third in command. There's no sense of remorse, brokenness. There's nothing. Nebuchadnezzar, we saw in chapter 4 last week, there's a sense of responding to that. He's, he repents eventually. Not so with Belshazzar. The point is, this unrepented sin is judged. Sin must be repented of. I mean, Jesus' first word after he's baptized is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like the first word of Jesus' ministry is repent. Like turn from your sin. Listen, you will either be judged for your sin or because of the cross, your sin is judged and placed on Jesus. Either way, sin is going to be judged. So sin is either judged. Either you're judged for your sin or your sin is placed on Jesus and is judged that way. And here's why I just want to try to connect this together. This story is like tragic. 
the kingdom stripped away. We're going to see Daniel with Darius and the lions. There's like things to come. He'll still have more visions to come. I know this might be confusing in some ways, but the most of the book of, Daniel focus, book of Daniel focuses on Daniel later in life. So there's still things to come. But when I look at this story and I read this, I go, wow, God, first of all, your finger of like judgment is how we so often see it. It was this beautiful warning for him to wake up and repent, and yet he did not. The law that was written with the finger of God was not just a law to say you're judged, to say, here's the standard that you cannot keep. Here's a standard to keep. The, the finger of God wrote the law. The finger of God wrote on the wall. Do you remember in John 8, the finger of God writing on the ground? Do you remember in John chapter 8, the beautiful story of the woman who's caught in adultery? They set her up. They bring this woman before Jesus. The person who was sleeping with her is not there. And they say, Jesus, this woman's caught in adultery. What do you say? And do you remember the finger of God, what it did? It starts to be in the right in the sand. And just one by one, Jesus is right in the sand, and one by one, people begin to leave. And we'll put the verses up here in John 8, 6. I love this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger. And I just feel like that's, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And then he says, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. They went away one by one. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And, uh, and go. And from now on, sin no more. Here's what I want to say. The finger of God wrote the law. The finger of God was writing the wall. The finger of God wrote on the ground. Now, what I love about this is Jesus, I'm sure, there's so much speculation, what did he write? But I mean, these accusers saying, look at her sin. Jesus condemned her. I'm sure he just started writing down their sin. Because <laughs> one by one, they just start leaving like, I, I, can't, I, have no right to, I have no right to judge her. But one by one, these self-righteous Pharisees who are there to really kill her have to leave because of their, their sins exposed. And Jesus goes, where are your accusers? There are none. And I love this, obviously. He goes, you're, you're forgiven. Go. But sin no more. Don't continue in this. And you see this idea of like, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Church, if there's anything I want you to see that's so beautiful about this story. God's like, I wrote on stone. I wrote on a wall. I wrote on the ground. And the handwriting of requirement that was against us has been nailed to the cross. Your sins and my sins, that finger that wrote down, the handwriting of requirements against us, it's now nailed to the cross of Jesus. My point being, we can learn from Belshazzar. It doesn't have to be written on the wall. It doesn't have to be written on stone. Let it be written on the cross for you today. Experience the fact that Jesus wrote down and says, Te Telestai, it's finished, it's done, it's paid in full. Your sins are forgiven. It's not just written on stone. It's written on the cross been nailed to the cross. The things that were held against me and held against you have been nailed to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. That's not just written in stone, but it's, it's written on that paper that's nailed to the cross. I'm so thankful that's been paid for. You need to know this. It doesn't have to end in tragedy. It doesn't have to end with, well, and Belshazzar just died in the end, and we have nothing to learn from. No, no. That was, was, which was written against him, like us, it's nailed to the cross. And do you believe that? Have you received that? Do you know that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and it is stamped over your sin, paid in full, it is finished, it's done, it's nailed to the cross? You can know that. Jesus is the one who writes on the ground and says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Does he know your sin? Of course he knows your sin. He knows my sin. And he paid for that sin. And he nailed it to the cross. And I say, now go and sin no more. Now live a new life. No longer walk in the old patterns. Yes? Amen? Can we do this? Can you stand with me really quick? I'm just going to ask that you really quick just, um, just close your eyes, bow your head. And if you would, just, just do this. You're not talking to me or anyone else. Just close your eyes, extend your hands. And if you feel so led, 
Just repeat these words after me. Say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. Thank you for paying for my sin. I believe on you. It is paid in full. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. We are so grateful that these things are written on stone and on the wall, but now it's been written and nailed to the cross. And Lord, I ask that this would not just be some story of some tragic king. Lord, help us learn from this. Help us not just respond in emotion. Help us not just respond with our knees trembling. Let it be more than that, Lord. God, I ask that you would just set us free, Jesus, that we'd go and sin no more, that, Lord, we not turn back to those former ways or former things, God, that, God, you've come to give us life. And so, Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your son. I want to thank you for this time. Jesus, I just ask that you would just move and go before us, Lord, that we would not just read the story of Daniel and say, um, that was cool for them then, but this is for us today. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We ask that you would produce within us what it is you want to do. Bless everyone in this room, God. Set them free. Lord, let, help them not to just uh, party and drown out the reality that judgment is coming. Let them just sit in that, Lord, and know that it's been paid in full. Let them rejoice in the fact that, Jesus, you died and rose again. And if we believe in you, we too will rise. Let them walk in victory and a new life. Thank you for what you've done. There's no one like you. In your name, Jesus, amen.